Now, as things are becoming more connected, people are starting to figure out, oh, the cell doesn't become the tissue unless you train it to become the tissue. And again, that's tissue engineering. It influences its environment based on what the milieu of that environment tells it. So one of the biggest problems with regenerative medicine, people throw around words like stem cells. And there's all these derivatives. So you've got perinatal biologics or stuff out of a bottle. You've got adipose-derived biologic or fat. You've got bone marrow. And then you've got products from the blood. But really what you're looking at is three things, cells, signals, and scaffolds. That's the mirepoix, if you will, of regenerative medicine. Everything's a derivative of those three components. Welcome to the Regenerative Warrior Podcast, Doctor's Edition. One of the fastest growing regenerative medicine and anti-aging podcasts in the world. Each and every Tuesday and Thursday, I talk to the top experts to show doctors how to market, manage, and magnify their practice to help more people and make more money. Each episode is short and to the point without wasting your time with pointless conversation. Learn the skills to be successful without traveling to seminars or paying for expensive consulting fees. Are you ready? Because I am. I'm Dr. Ross Carter, and it's time to start the Regenerative Warrior Podcast now. Two things before we get started. The views expressed by our guests are not necessarily those of Dr. Carter or this podcast. One of our podcast partners has just announced special pricing for our listeners. Wharton's Jelly Allograph for $475 per cc. You heard that right, only $475. White papers are available. This is for a limited time, so act now. Why pay double or triple the price from other providers? To learn more or to order, text your name and the word JELLY, J-E-L-L-Y, to 561-962-1231. Write that down. It's 561-962-1231. On with the show. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Ross Carter with the Regenerative Warrior Podcast. We have a special guest today. His name is Joseph Krieger. He's with Boston Biolife. Welcome. Thank you, Dr. Carter. I appreciate you having me on today to talk about Boston Biolife and some of the activities we have surrounding training and education in translational medicine and how it applies specifically to the world of regenerative medicine, which we all know is a hot topic and I think part of the focus of your radio show. So uh, I'm honored to be here today. Well, I appreciate you attending and listening and helping us out. So tell me a little bit about you as well as, you know, how you got started in this industry. So I have kind of a unique background. I grew up in a very intellectual family that uh, did everything from nursing to science to engineering. And when I was a little kid, my mother thought I was a farmer because I was constantly bringing home some stray animal and I had chickens and ducks and goats and we had birds and iguanas and lizards. And so we basically had a farm, but through all of that, I was always fascinated with biology. And my mother taught me college nursing when I was uh, probably 11 years old because she was going through nursing education. And so I was the tutor and every night we would sit with the book and book and the flashcards. And by the time I got to seventh grade, I was fairly advanced in uh, most of the nuances of medical mm -hmm. technology. And really, I became kind of a fan of the history of medicine. So I was always fascinated on how, you know, ancient cultures treated people and things like trepanation, where they actually drilled holes in your head. And over time, by just wanting to be with my mother and being part of a scientific environment, I and you know, as a little boy, the people would say, what do you want to be? And I just said, I'll be a doctor because if I told people I was going to be a farmer or a social worker or a musician, they'd say, oh, you're going to starve. But when you tell people you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer, they're like, oh, good. So there came a day I actually went to uh, University of Massachusetts pre-med and 
and then it was time to go to medical school. And so I enrolled as an MD-PhD candidate at Boston University School of Medicine. And I quickly learned that the medical profession was difficult and I didn't know if I could navigate through all the things that you needed to. So I focused on the PhD component, biochemistry, and I worked in a lab and I did fairly well. But unlike pursuing traditional biochemistry activities, I went right into medical devices. And there I was surrounded again with the history and the evolution of medicine. The company I worked for, Radionics, was actually a pioneer in electrosurgery, and they worked in cardiology, treating arrhythmias. They worked in neurosurgery, treating functional disorders like Parkinson's and epilepsy and Alzheimer's, tumor removal, AVMs, etc. And we quickly developed a stereotactic initiative in which we use software and stereotactic planning for minimally invasive surgery. So I knew then that that was going to be the future of medicine. So as incisions became smaller and smaller, like if you just consider what they used to do for cardiac bypass, I mean, before you just die, but then they could crack your chest and begin to reconnect uh, valves and veins and arteries and blood vessels. And now everything's done percutaneously through portals, but it all relies on imaging. So imaging and software and novel medical devices were really huge in terms of changing the landscape of traditional medicine. I always knew one day, but wasn't quite sure when the biological revolution would come in. Because if you think about what you're doing, for example, with cardiac arrhythmias, you would actually remove a small divot of the heart because that's where the aberrant signal was. Then they started hooking energy devices up to mapping catheters and they were able to destroy smaller areas of tissue to try to, and then the whole cardiac ablation with radio frequency basically came along and that revolutionized how arrhythmias are treated, even to the point where there's hardly any Wolf Parkinson whites. So surgery and pharmacy evolved along similar pathways. And, you know, fast forward to today, we see that regenerative medicine, translational medicine, or the biology of the human pathology is really the future of healthcare. So that's why I started Boston BioLife to teach doctors and healthcare providers the biochemistry of medicine, but also to try to forward the thinking of novel therapies to primary care physicians or other physician types that actually were able to talk to patients. So to give patients hope and awareness of what's possible for whatever diseases they're treating. I hope that makes sense. It does. It does. Now, you said you started getting into the education, and that's what you do now is education. Now, what do you see in this industry, in the regenerative medicine and as it relates to education or lack thereof, what do you think? Yeah, so really what it is is regenerative medicine transcends all ologies. But I mean by that, it's, it's not ology-centric per se. So there's oncology and cardiology and neurology and hematology and embryology. All these different clinical silos that deal with specific body parts all have their own awareness of what tissue regeneration is. So you have, you've got regenerative medicine and you have tissue engineering, and they're very different and they're often confused. But because there's not crossover between, say, oncology and oncology or cardiology or neurosurgery, they don't have the ability to learn from each other. So now as things are becoming more connected, people are starting to figure out, oh, the cell doesn't become the tissue unless you train it to become the tissue. And again, that's tissue engineering. It influences the environment based on what the milieu of that environment tells it. So one of the biggest problems with regenerative medicine, people throw around words like stem cells. And there's all these derivatives. So you've got perinatal biologics or stuff out of a bottle. You've got adipose-derived biologic or fat. You've got bone marrow. And then you've got products from the blood. But really what you're looking at is three things, cells, signals, and scaffolds. That's the mirepoix, if you will, of regenerative medicine. Everything's a derivative of those three components. So the cells are unique in terms of themselves. They express uh, the signals based on what they see. And then you need an environment, and that's the extracellular matrices, the scaffold. So if you keep that in mind and then think backwards as to, okay, let's say you're treating OA of the knee. 
well, you've got these four categories of products that you can choose. You, know, you can take a perinatal biologic like a Wharton's jelly or amniotic fluid, all of which are falling under intense scrutiny now because of the lack of manufacturing consistency. And that's another thing we'll talk about as far as education. The people that are yep. bringing the awareness to clinics are sales reps. They're non-MDs. They're not researchers. They're parroting what the processing labs have told them. But not only that, but there is no standards amongst these perinatal guide manufacturers except to be GMP compliant. So they may be FDA registered. They may be claimed to be certified, but they're not necessarily inspected or tested or challenged. And we're seeing a big spotlight on that right now. And as the FDA has clearly posted guidelines, none of these are really enforced because they're not rules. They're suggestions and they change and they change a lot based on what information comes. But the good news is, and it's not all bad news, is there's a lot of publications, there's a lot of research. There's a thing called the RMAT, which is Regenerative Medicine Accelerated Track. So the centers, uh, CERBER, FDA, NIH are all working together to try to create pathways for novel innovations. Most of this is being done on the state level. So those are the right to try. Arkansas has passed a law saying if a patient wants to have a regenerative therapy, then insurance should cover it. So there's a lot of dynamics going around, but the bottom line is that the misconceptions that come from the field really aren't coming from the experts. And there's everybody has a vested interest in protecting their own, you know, silo of technology. So like the bone marrow people don't like the fat people and the fat people hate the perinatal biologics and the orthopedic surgeons don't want anything except for what comes out of bone. So you have these factions all. But if you look at the essence of all of the components and you apply that to a personalized precision application where each patient is their own end of one care plan. And you'll hear me talk about this because it's important. We can't treat people as groups. And that's why the pharmaceutical industry fails a high percentage of its patients because there's not enough awareness of that individual patient's uh, genomics, proteomics, comorbidities, past histories. All of these things have to do with how well a therapy or a procedure or a technique will work. Right. We're not all well, one size fits all kind of person thing, right? Exactly. And I think what's really going to drive things going forward is the involvement of family medicine, which has been absent, the evolution of integrative wellness as it kind of evolves into personalized precision, looking at genomic panels, looking at methylization panels, looking at blood chemistry, biomarkers, and then the patient itself becoming more aware of potential therapies and asking for them. So we believe the patient will become their own education care provider to the physician. Sorry for the interruption again. To find out more about this speaker, become a speaker on our show. Have Dr. Carter present at your event or podcast. Learn more about coaching, consulting, tissue allografts, exosomes, supplements, legal health, or how to create a million-dollar business card and dominate your area. We're here to help you. Just text your name and any question to 561-962-1231. Write that down. That's 561-962-1231. Or go to our website at drrosscarter.com to learn more. Don't forget about our current $475 Warden's Jelly special. On with the show. Why can't you look at my hormone levels? Why can't you look at my brainwaves? Why are my neurotransmitters? How does my gut affect my ability to absorb nutrition? So I can build, you know, the amino acids and proteins that translate into neurotransmitters. And these are things that are going to become more mainstream and really even opportunities to speak like this, because as an educator, and that's what I am, I teach the science. of, I facilitate the education of translational medicine. 
So I'm not a PhD. I'm not an MD. I'm just a person that's been surrounded by science and medicine for 27 years that's seen how evolution happens, and it happens through training. And so I learned years ago that if I run cadaver courses for surgical training, back then, again, it was less invasive imaging, so C-arms and endoscopes, et cetera. You know, doctors can learn from each other. And the manufacturing companies need to be there providing good products, and they learn what the doctors need. And that was very exciting to me to see a neurosurgeon say, take this tool and put a 20-degree bend in it and put a rubber handle on it, and you'll sell a ton of them. And we did because we listened to people and we paid attention to what they needed to do their job. And so by bringing those people together, technology providers, physicians, and other shareholders, you have a natural ability to create change. It doesn't happen overnight. So in my old life, I did this 12 years, close to 250 cadaver courses, and over 1,500 doctors a year came through one of my programs. So now we have in-person meetings, but we also have an academy. So we have the Boston BioLife Academy, and we have, I think, somewhat of 80 presentations that you can watch for getting a credit, a certificate, and have a quiz. And they'll just walk you through the basic science of cell signaling, paracrine signaling, extracellular matrices, different derivatives like bone marrow, fat, or blood, and how they apply clinically, but also what the research says about them. So we're trying to bring the tools together so people can learn the basics, and then they can apply them to their own clinical practice, or at least knowing the truth. Right, and not getting educated by somebody who has a vested interest in selling a product or service, right? Yeah, you know, and the funny thing about it and the irony of about it is like if you look at just one thing where they say that amniotic fluid has no living cells, so, and it can't, right, yeah. okay? And if you harvest the amniotic fluid from a pregnancy immediately, yeah, there'd it, be live stuff in there. But after you filter it and irradiate it and freeze dry it and whatever, it's most likely if there's any cellular material, which you would hope there isn't, everything should be soluble. It's dead, but it may be a right. you know, piece of outer membrane or there might be a hunk of a protein floating around. And this is where the processing thing, but the sales reps, because they believe the physicians are conditioned to use the word cell as the key component and the patients say, oh, stem cells. So stem cells are like saying we have people. There's all kinds of different people and they come from different places and they do different things and they have different evolution. So when you're eight years old and you say, I want to be a baseball player, well, you never grow past five foot five and you got two left feet. Well, you're probably going to become an accountant. That's okay. <laughs> Not everybody has the gene to become a baseball player. You can want to become a baseball player, but only the athletes will become baseball players. And that's very much along how these cells progress across lineages. So they become committed. So if you look at embryology science, where we were, you know, one cell and then two cells, and then we become a blastula, and then we become endomesoecto, the inner, middle, outer, and then these cells become more specialized. Really what's happening is genes are becoming methylated or unmethylated, and they're being turned off. And so they, you no longer need bone in your heart. So as things change and you evolve, that's very much along the lines of how these different cell types and every tissue has stem cells because they rejuvenate themselves especially uh, things like any endothelial layer. And there's great research by Hans Clevens on the biochemistry of stem cell turnover or cell propagation within the endothelial lining. And it's amazing how fast these cells actually turn over because if we ever see a baby, how fast they heal. It's because right. these cells are rapidly turning over. Yeah. And so basically, if you look at how these things work together, you start to get a better idea of when you should use like PRP or bone marrow or adipose drive biologics, not necessarily listening to, you know, what one main manufacturer says. So that if the cord blood, so cord blood's another one and cord blood's been used for decades, but no one's ever talked about it. And it was harvested for a first or second level family member. And now it's being pretty much put everywhere. 
And so recently there's been a rash of infections and the FDA's and everybody's jumping up and down and CNA's, CNN's publishing articles. And I think this is good because I think people need to wake up and I think the manufacturers need to be responsible for how they do what they do. And I heard one time that there were 70 people that 70 different organizations that process cord blood and perinatal biologics. Wow. That's pretty astounding. There's 20 some odd companies that are prominent in the market, but it, responsibility comes from the manufacturers and it needs to be if this is going to be, you know, not destroyed. Well, talking about that, is that how it, do you think that happens? Because, okay, so you have an end consumer who receives a service and either they get a result or they don't. And what if they have a problem? They don't go after the manufacturer of the product or the sales rep that sold it to the doctor. They go after the doctor. So do you think it's right the way that's set up to where the doctor is taking all the responsibility for the manufacturing of these products and making sure that they get the right company? I mean, how does that work? I mean, that's a concern for a provider because, look, I'm putting my license on the line to sell some product that a guy from Home Depot who's a sales rep just sold me and said that it can solve all my problems. So how do you know what to do and protect yourself when it comes to these type of things? All I can say is caveat emptor, and that's why we try to be a resource. And going back to the, the cell versus non-cell and 361, which is regulated, and 351, which is a drug, these arguments is kind of silly because most of the activity of these biologics come through the secretome. It's not what the cell's doing. It's what the cell left behind. So exosomes are how cells talk to each other. So the exosome is the text message to the cell is the cell phone. And depending upon what tissue type it is, they'll secrete. So synovial cells secrete cartilage liking exosomes. And really what an exosome is doing is transferring you. RNA. It could be there's other things in there too. And I think there's going to be, you know, you're going to see custom personalized exosome development. You already are. It's just no one knows. And no one I, even knows about that it. excites me. I love that concept. Dude. An exosome well, created, you the, know. This is why the perinatal biologics. So if you look at the perinatal stem cell society meeting and then look at yeah. the world stem cell summit, and then you look at the national cord blood registry and you look at that every major and pharmaceutical company is doing some type of perinatal research because within the either the Wharton's jelly or the cord blood proper or the embryonic membrane or the fluid, all of those, there are live cells in there at one point in time. Now, when you freeze them and put DMSO in them, or if you got to irradiate them, then the cells will die. But the serum of those cells has proteins in it. And we've not even begun to look at things like GDP-11, which is the same as bold morphogenic protein. They know that these proteins regrow blood, regrow tissue based on what they see. And you have things like LL-37, which are antimicrobial, things like interleukin-10, which can drop inflammation in the interthecal space around instead of having drug delivery pumps that put morphine into a patient. There's all these biologics that are coming from these constituents that have potential. Because if you can figure out what protein it is, you can isolate it. You can even create a recombinant. So you're not reliant. But it's really the industry itself that needs to be able to stand up and say, you know, and they all say that they're the ones that are the, you know, and I think the FDA wanted to give them three years, but now we've got so much negative press around a few things that have happened. And it probably was the doctor's fault. I mean, if you sterilize and radiate and freeze, yeah, I don't think anything's living in that. But if you use a dirty needle and your clinic's not clean, and you know, so the patient needs to be aware too of who asks for references and look at. There's reputable. There's two factions. There's clinics that provide regenerative medicine therapies, like orthopedic clinics. They're not stem cell clinics. I tell my people all the time, you're not a stem cell clinic. But then there are stem cell clinics clinics that use primarily perinatal biologics, and they'll treat a whole range of neurological conditions and rare disorders. And, you know, to be honest with you, we've seen research in epilepsy, Parkinson's stroke, we've seen autism, and we've seen positive results. Our quadriplegics, all using some derivative of a perinatal biologic. 
So to say it doesn't have any value and to, to throw it away, I think is irresponsible. But really knowing the difference between each product, where it came from, and I can't keep track of these manufacturers. They pop up all the time, but I do know that there are, you know, a handful of them, if not more, that are trying to do the science, trying to do the research, or going to the regulatory process. Because in all of those products is the biochemistry of longevity, because they come from the most nascent form possible, an embryo, and not even an embryo, an adult stem cell from perinatal biologics. So tell me a little bit more about education in regards to, let's say, a provider is wanting to get involved in doing these things and adding this to their services. How does one start? Where would you suggest they start? So I always tell people that come to my meetings, you know, our courses, I think, are really the only ones that is designed to give you a bottom to top overview. Like we literally go through what I just said, the cell signals and the scaffolds. We look at the different derivatives, bone, blood, fat out of a bottle. And then we look at the difference between the different techniques. Sorry for the interruption again. To find out more about this speaker, become a speaker on our show, have Dr. Carter present at your event or podcast, learn more about coaching, consulting, tissue allographs, exosomes, supplements, legal help, or how to create a million-dollar business card and dominate your area, we're here to help you. Just text your name and any question to 561-962-1231. Write that down. That's 561 561- 9621231 or go to our website at drrosscarter.com to learn more. Don't forget about our current $475 Warden's Jelly special. On with the show. Just if you look at fat. So first of all, you have to understand what fat tissue is. Why does it have regenerative properties? So then you learn about pericytes that live on blood vessels that live within the endothelial lining against what they call the stromovascular fraction, which is the extracellular matrix. And we don't pay enough attention to the power of ECM. Extracellular matrices are very important signaling components, and that's a whole other world. But that being said, for every pound of fat, your body lays down seven miles of blood vessels. So it's highly angiogenic. So think of it this way. You don't have a town if you don't have a river. So any place that you can increase the blood supply, you're going to be able to increase the nutrition, the flow of materials and things. So when you take fat and you process it, so how you harvest it, there's mechanical like lipoaspiration machines, and then there's all these different versions of that. Some vibrate, some use water, some just use you know, regular suction. And then there's the non-mechanical or the static aspiration where you just kind of do negative pressure and you can pull out a little bit of fat from the love handles. And you take those and then you basically rinse them and use different. The regulatory thing is nothing IV and you can't use enzymatic digestion digestion of the extracellular matrix. So that's what they call uh, minimal manipulation. But you can use mechanical tools like filters or ball bearings. And one company just got approved using mechanical isolation. And when you smash the fat cells up into little balls, and some people call them fuzzy balls, they still have the cell that's broken apart. And the pericytes are flying around and the blood vessels are there. And then when they, if you put them into a structure like a breast reconstruction or a fat in a face for rejuvenation or, you know, people who put them in the joints, the shoulders, in the knees, those cells look around and say, all right, we're not in fat anymore, but we're in an inflamed environment. The cells will migrate to inflammation. They'll release cytokines and growth factors that'll stop the inflammation and begin to signal in the healing. And they'll wake up resident stem cells and start to communicate with them to start initiating the healing. So that's how fat works. And you can see it in dermatology. You can see see it in radiation burns. Patients with double mastectomies, 
that weren't eligible with radiation burns that weren't eligible for breast implants. They have not just good results, they have amazing results. Unfortunately, most of this reconstructive surgery is being done outside of the country because of the regulatory restrictions on adipose. And the FDA claims that fat is for cushioning and support, and they don't want the behavior of the cells to be metabolically responsible for the regenerative process, if that makes any sense whatsoever. So fat is one of these areas that people tend to shy away from. But if you really look at the landscape of where adipose has been used across different clinical areas across the world, not just the U.S., you're going to see amazing things. You're going to see facial reconstruction, face transplants. You're going to see cartilage transplants. They do in Amsterdam. They just take cadaver cartilage, shape it, and then uh, use adipose-derived biologics, calcium chloride, and they use that underneath, and then they suture the cartilage back on top, and it integrates. There's something about the angiogenic properties of adipose-derived biologics that facilitate healing. And then you, so they and mix you them? can, there's a whole, they mix them. Yeah. You want a bone graft, you need a foundation. And then the ECM, there, there is extracellular matrix in the fat and collagen, a bunch of other stuff too, but it will integrate with calcium chloride and it starts to stimulate, you know, vascularization. And then when they put these cadaveric joints on there, they just reskin the knee. You know, it's like a retread on a tire and these wow. patients do amazing. Six months, they're like normal. And well, we, we can't do that, do that here. Uh, well, I'm sure that, that seems so wrong, wrong though. Why is that? Why do you well, think that is? Because it falls back into education. So you have all these fiefdoms and you have all these, you know, interests. Do you think Stryker and Zimmer and Biomet and Smith and Nephew want that to happen? Not unless they're doing it. And the funny thing is they were doing it. They were creating synthetic cartilage and using 3D, CD uh, images and printing to try to create custom implants for patients. And, you know, the joint business, the joint replacement business is big money. And the problem is we know the revision rates are high and we know the failure rates are high, not just for knees, but for spine and other areas. And so it's a matter of looking at all the tools. We're not going to replace surgery in our lifetime. Our kids' kids will see amazing things. Our kids will see amazing things. Yeah. But in 20 years, they'll dig people up and say, what's all this metal? What were they doing <laughs> back then? Just like we dig up people from 6,000 years ago, why do they have holes in their head? Well, they were trying to let the demons out. You know, and everyone thought that was a great idea. So it, it's not unlikely... Um, Look, in wound care, I'll be perfectly honest, in wound care, they still use leeches when they know that like enzymatic debridement and some of these other, but in wound care, the people are incentivized to keep patients in a chair. So even though you can do all these things potentially with regenerative medicine, and we've run regenerative medicine wound care courses, but we combine them with traditional therapies like hyperbaric oxygen and negative pressure and mechanical debridement and enzymatic debridement, all these uh, air things that they use. But when you bring in the biologics, they really do help the healing. And again, wound care, dermatology, hair loss, burns, all of those things are beautiful because you can see it happen. You can't see it in a knee, although there are people doing follow-up MRIs and studies like at the Andrews Institute, and we're very interested in those publications. But giving doctors the ability to do research, looking at PubMed, looking at clinicaltrials.gov, looking at organizations like bioinformant, and I think you should have Katie on your show. I want She's to. I've, talked, I've written her several times. I love her information. It's, it's fantastic. No, we'll get her on. I'm going to be down at the World Stem Cell Summit in the 22nd in of January. Yeah, I'll yeah. be there. We'll drag her into a corner and put a camera on her face. <laughs> I'll attack her. Has... That's perfect. She <laughs> that, no, she's tied into a lot of great things. And I, and again, this with all with all due respect, I tell people, you know, become a member of whatever society you believe has the highest integrity. And they're starting to come out. You know, the problem is the big ones don't. Although they will eventually come around. They have to. But right now it's being performed primarily in the single specialty outpatient clinic. And then there's the nuances of the orthopedic versus physical therapy versus physiatry versus surgery. All of these different surgical types all have their own view of the world, as well do the patients. But 
you got to start somewhere. And it's no different than any other evolution of science. As I said in the beginning, it's, you know, what have we learned in 100 years of medicine? What have we learned in 500 years? So we see that, you know, back in 1600, 1636, when the first medical schools came out, the only requirement to be a doctor was you needed three things. You needed to have a certain skill, although it was undefined. You wanted to have passion to help another person and you promised to do no harm. That's it. You're a doctor. And the evolution of medical colleges is interesting because as they popped up, there was no governing entity. There was no AMA. So then became the board of boards. So every group has a board, but there's a board of the boards for all of the boards. And they define the standards across how medical education is administered and what the minimal requirements are for different uh, credentials. And we don't have one for regenerative medicine. Regenerative medicine is locked into research as it comes into the clinic. There's no standards. And see, this goes back full circle to why there's so much information or variability because none of the perinatal companies want to tell you how they process their material. It's a black box, whether they use enzyme or mechanical or they freeze it or whatever they do, they rinse it with this. They all have their own way of doing it. Coca-Cola and Pepsi and Dr. Pepper, they don't want you to know. But until they get into the root cause of what they do, they're always going to have, you know, a level of scrutiny applied to how they practice. But we'll see. You know, things aren't going to stop. Things will change. And I think patients become more educated. Doctors are becoming more educated. And all what we want to do is we just want to be, you know, the turnstile of information. When people say, well, you can't use exosomes derived from perinatal biologics for orthopedic procedures. And I pull up a paper and say, well, here's one. You know, all these teaching institutions are doing incredible things research-wise. But the premise of Boston BioLife is to bring the scientist and the healthcare provider and the technology provider together for the benefit of the patient. That's it. So now what you have is NIH. NIH lecturing to NIH. You have Duke University lecturing to um, Wake Forest. They get it. The government sits there and says, oh, yeah, this is great. Look at the science, look at the research. There's no method. There's no pathway to application in clinical practice. That's why research money for certain things, that's why there's no cure for cancer, because the money goes into a research group that then does research, creates publications. But unless somebody picks it up from a commercial standpoint or you're involved in a clinical trial, you don't. the population doesn't get access to that benefit. It just dies with the research. And then the next chunk of money comes in and the next group of people work on stuff. And yet there are companies that work closely with the, at least in my area, Harvard, and they are creating novel therapies to cure cancers, but it's going to cost you a quarter million dollars. And they're going to take your immune system and they're going to change it to pull out your, your killer cells and your T cells and modify them to attack your disease. But unless you're like super rich or you can get into one of these studies, but guess what? That's possible and it's happening. It's just not happening on a scale. But there's no different than computers or the internet or or printing, or think of all the things that we never thought would happen. Right. Now we all have computers in our hands, so it's a matter of time. And that time gap is shrinking. So what was 10 years is now, I'd say, three. Five to seven is definitely three. So Five do you see a revolution in this area soon happening? I, I see consistent evolution. I see consistent progress, but I see quantum shift. Things that we don't even think about now are coming in. People are working on things like creating exosomes from very unique cell types. Uh, culture and expansion, as much as people don't, it's illegal or authorized in this country, it's going to be how it works. People are going to take their own cells, they're going to culture and expand them, they're going to train them to be healthier, and they're going to put them back in their own body. And whether the FDA says that's legal or not, I don't think it's going to matter because, like Kate Elder says, these are our, our cells, they're not drugs. And they are, the you know, and I think the people that have the vested interest, i.e. surgery and pharmacy, they need to get on board, and they are getting on board. They're secretly plotting in the background to create whatever we're going to need out of the bottle so they maintain. And all of them are, just like the camera companies. Remember Nikon, Fuji, Hitachi? They all became medical companies. They all started making CT scanners and endoscopy equipment because they knew the shift was coming. They knew film was going to die, but not radiology. As a matter of fact, the imaging world 
you know, catapulted radiology because then software could come out and say, oh, there's a tumor, there's a blood vessel, fix that. And now we're going to be doing that on a cellular level. So I think that early detection, patient education, physician awareness, manufacturing and provider responsibility, it has to come to the top on its own. And it will because A, the technologies are working, B, the patients want it, there's research to support it. We're connected now more than ever, and it's being driven. It's being driven by scientists and doctors around the world, and patients want it. So whether it's Parkinson's or epilepsy or autism or osteoarthritis or rare diseases, we're at a forefront now in the collective awareness from physicians, healthcare providers, and patients, I think, and the government. I mean, people want this to work out. The money we spend on diseases and injuries and things is far greater exactly. than we'll spend on, on prevention and wellness. And I right. just think that that's, we're a reactionary healthcare society. One in 200 people that go to a hospital die. It's like the sixth leading cause of death is death by doctor. And I think the future of health medicine is outside of the hospital environment. I think it's going to be in family practice and integrative wellness and, and these specialty clinics that don't just do stem cells, but they're going to test you genetically. They're going to look for biomarkers. They're going to apply different therapies that are for you, your biology, and you know get you involved in your own outcomes, make you responsible. That future sounds patient. awesome. I love that. That would be an awesome future. I just think the financial interest of the companies of the past and current are kind of weighing it down and preventing it from progressing like it should. But there are people that have financial incentives to do this, and these are the insurance companies. They don't want to see you fall off a ladder and get a joint replacement, and then you're on Percocet, and then you're in a rehab clinic, and then you're on heroin and then you're in jail and, you know, then you're out of jail and, you know, the whole opioid epidemic and uh, narcotics and surgery, I think people would rather have you have rehab, physical therapy, uh, regenerative medicine therapies, get into diet exercise. If nothing else, just try that as a front line before you, you yeah. can always do surgery. And I think right. that's what self-insurance companies like Home Depot and some of the bigger ones that have liability with people working in physical, they're now seeking out clinics to say, hey, treat our patients. We don't want to do this the way that we're doing it now because the patients become on disability and they become wards and they're on the paycheck forever. And that's what's killing insurance. That's why everything's so expensive. People without insurance and then the fact that the wrong things are done to patients which keep the coverage never ending, which some healthcare providers want. They don't want an empty bed, you know, so they're going to do what they can to keep people in those beds. It sounds crazy, but I think there's truth to that. And I think that the money really will come from prevention by not spending the healthcare dollars that people have to spend. You know, you'd be spend $1,500 a month to your family and you get an $8,000 deductible. It's just crazy to eat that deductible. You know what I mean? And that's why some of these family medicine doctors say, well, why don't we just have our own wellness program? Give us 200 bucks a month and we'll tell you how to diet and exercise and you can send us your, you know, your EKGs or whatever you want, telemedicine. All of those things are part of the, uh, I think, the future of patient-centered healthcare. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Please subscribe to be notified of all new episodes and also like and share this to help us grow. To find out more about this speaker, become a speaker on our show, to have Dr. Carter present at your event or podcast, learn more about coaching, consulting, tissue allographs, exosomes, supplements, legal help, or how to create a million-dollar business card to dominate your local area, we're here to help you. Just text your name and your question to 561 561- 9621231 write that down that's 5619621231 or you can go to our website at drrosscarter.com that's d r r o s s c a r t e r.com to learn more until next time this is dr ross carter signing off, signing off.